You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War Premium episode number 33. The war had opened in German East Africa with the Germans taking Tavita in British East Africa. Then the Battle of Tanga had occurred in November during which the German forces under General Latav Vorbeck had repulsed a British amphibious invasion. In January 1915, the Germans and British had once again clashed at Jassen, where the German forces had lost a large percentage of their officers and also expended a large portion of their available ammunition. Even though both of these actions could be considered a German victory, they would still cause Latav Vorbeck to have to reconsider his situation. Given the supply situation for the German troops, it became imperative that Vorbeck switch tactics. He would say that, quote, the need to strike great blows only quite exceptionally and restrict myself principally to guerrilla warfare was evidently imperative. This shift, which would begin in early 1915, would represent the second stage of the campaign in East Africa. And this stage would continue into 1917. The Germans would continue to move around the colony, and would not totally give up hope of hitting a really good, solid military victory on the battlefield, but Vorbeck was far more focused on just keeping his forces in the field. During this time, they would be almost constantly chased by the British. The Germans would move from place to place, taking advantage of supplies that had been positioned in these areas for other purposes before the war, or just whatever food they could find. This would also be a time period where the British and their allies would fail time and time again to tie Vorbeck down, or to really accomplish any of their goals. Today we will discuss these failures in both 1915 and then during the far larger campaigns of 1916, during which the British would get serious about the actions in East Africa by bringing in troops from South Africa and even Europe. Our episode today starts not with the British or the Germans, though, but instead the Belgians. 
While the primary German raids were into British East Africa, there were also German forces that would attack into the Belgian Congo. Much like Snee and the Germans, the colonial authorities in the Belgian Congo had hoped that they could keep their colony neutral during the war. When this proved to be impossible, it would take time for them to move troops to the borders. By early 1915, enough of these defenders had gotten to the border with German East Africa to repel further German raids. The number of Belgian forces had even risen enough that they began to do some raiding into German territory themselves, with these raids being led by a British businessman, Ewart Grogan. He would, leave several, he would lead several successful raids into the German colony. During this same time, the British were trying to determine what they should do with the Germans who were still raiding into their territory out of Tavita. The problem was that the British did not have a huge numerical advantage, certainly not enough to launch a successful operation uh, into Tavita. Supplies were also a constant problem. In total, there were about 4,000 combat troops in British East Africa at this time, and that was simply not enough to take on Letov Vorbeck and also maintain any kind of defense of the rest of the colony. They were therefore forced to wait for more troops to arrive. While the British were sort of sitting it out for the moment, it didn't mean that everything was idle. One area where the British and Belgians would work closely together was on and around Lake Tanganyika. This lake was important because it covered a huge area and provided the best method for transporting troops and supplies all around it. Boats on the lake could provide almost infinitely more mobility than anything that could happen on land, and so both sides were vying for control of the lake during the first two years of the war. The Germans would strike first by sinking the Belgian ship Alexander de la Coombe, which was their largest and most powerful ship on the lake at the time. Then in November, they launched a raid that disabled the steamer Cecil Rhodes, while also capturing a large stash of British supplies, including 150 miles of telegraph wire. This telegraph wire was actually very important, and it was to be used almost immediately to connect the German positions on the lake to other German positions based into the interior of the German colony. And the reason it was so important is because they couldn't really make it locally, so it was one of those supplies that if you captured it, it was a, a really big deal. The British and Belgian situation on the lake was in flux for the early months of 1915, with the Germans having basically the run of the lake, allowing them to launch attacks along its banks repeatedly. In April, the British professional big game hunter, John R. Lee, approached the British with information that the Germans were preparing to launch a new steamer on the lake. It would be larger than any other ship on the lake, and would also be called the Gotson. It would measure 220 feet in length, dwarfing anything that the British or Belgians possessed. A vessel this large could not be wholly constructed in the area, and instead it was being built elsewhere and then shipped overland to the lake, where it would then be reassembled. Lee's great idea was to move an even larger ship onto the lake, constructing it in Europe and then shipping it to Africa. The British believed in this plan and made Lee a lieutenant in the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. He would move to Cape Town to oversee the effort. The battle for the lake would continue into 1916, with the Gotson playing an important role, but it would eventually be matched by the British vessels brought in to control it. Eventually, the Germans would lose control of the lake, with the Gotson eventually being scuttled to keep it out of British hands, which sort of ended the years-long battle of Lake Tanganyika. 
Latav Vorbeck's primary effort during this period was against the Uganda Railway. He would launch 50 separate raids against the railway in 1915, and these would slowly grind down its effectiveness to the point where it almost ceased to be effective or to operate at all. The condition of the rails was further complicated by just the sheer amount of traffic that was being forced upon it. It was a critical route for supplies to reach the British defenders of the colony, and the volume of traffic required by the war was far in excess of what it had been built for in peacetime. Even as the state of the rails sunk further and further, the British had no choice but to continue to push them to their maximum. It would be a year after Tanga before serious discussions about another British invasion of East Africa would occur. The plan created in England was to use South African troops, at least 10,000 of them, to launch another invasion of the German colony. The logical choice to lead these troops, with so many South Africans involved, was a South African general. And of those, the best choice was probably Jan Christian Smuts. However, at this time there were some political problems in South Africa, and Smuts did not want to leave the area, and so a different leader would have to be found. Eventually, General Smith Dorian would be chosen. Smith Dorian was something of a world traveler before the war, and like many pre-war British generals, he had been involved in his fair share of colonial conflict. He had led troops during the Zulu War in 1879, participated in the Boer War, and had been at Omdurman with Kitchener. He had then spent several years in India at the head of a division before going back to Europe in time to lead a division of the BEF at the start of the war. We have encountered him in our story way back in the 1914 episodes, if anybody remembers those, at the Battle of Lakato. Everyone thought that he was a good candidate for the position in East Africa, but right from the beginning he had some problems getting the resources required to make a second invasion a realistic possibility. While Smith Dorian was working hard to get his expedition ready for the invasion, nature itself would fight against him. After being in the theater for just three weeks, Smith Dorian would get very sick with pneumonia. In just that, those weeks, he would drop to just nine stone of weight, which for everyone outside of the UK means that he dropped to just 126 pounds. His clerk would say, quote, It would have killed him to have gone to East Africa. No one could have worked harder to make the expedition a success. I shall always think of Sir H, with all his peculiar and hard-to-get-used-to ways, as a great man, a fine soldier, and a God-fearing gentleman. He would simply have to be replaced, and once again the best option appeared to be Smuts. There was additional pressure to find a South African who could take command of this invasion due to the fact that there was not enough time to both bring in a leader from Europe and also to get the attack started before the rainy season really hit. Operations would have to start actually quite quickly. This time it was decided that South Africa was in a good enough position where he could leave and so Smuts came to take over command. He would be commissioned as a lieutenant general, and he would arrive in British East Africa in mid-February 1916. Captain Minor Tagen would write that Smuts, quote, is a fascinating little man, and one leaves him after an interview with the impression that he has a first-class brain. The best information that Smuts had about the situation that he was now walking into was a report from November 1915 that had been made by South African officers. In it, they had been positive about the prospects for an invasion, saying that it would require only a few months to completely finish off the German defenders. But when Smuts arrived, he quickly realized that perhaps it was not going to be so easy. 
What he found was a disorganized group of soldiers that had not had the great experiences during the war. It was going to be a difficult road to victory, even to convince them that victory was possible. One advantage that Smuts had over previous British leaders in East Africa was the number of troops under his command. The British had massively expanded the number of soldiers in the theater, and these troops would come from both South Africa and Europe. Two regiments would even be dispatched from France. This meant that by the time that Smuts arrived to take control, he was in command of over 27,000 troops. Many of the officers from South Africa even had some experience, having seen service during the Boer War, although most of their men were raw recruits with little experience. These men had all, almost exclusively lived in Africa their entire lives, but the Africa that they had lived in was generally very different from what they experienced in East Africa. The last South African troops would arrive on March 4th, and with their arrival, Smuts decided that it was time to set his plan into motion. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. With so many British resources arrayed against him, Latav Vorbeck was in a trap of his own making. If he wanted to pull in resources from the theaters, he had certainly accomplished his goal, even bringing in troops from France. But the question became, what to do now? While the British were reaching new heights in terms of troop numbers, Vorbeck was as well. At this point, he would have up to 20,000 troops under his command, and it would represent the only time for pretty much the rest of the war where his numbers would be comparable to that of his enemies. Not all of these troops were together, though, and most of them were scattered around the west or south regions of the colony instead of focused in what would prove to be the decisive northeastern quadrant. This meant that Latov Vorbeck only had about 4,000 troops at the point of greatest danger, Tavita. He knew that this number would not stop the British advance that was surely coming, but he hoped that it could give them a sharp jab before retreating. After reviewing the situation, Smuts would decide to basically just follow the plan that Smith Dorian had already created. This would involve a two-pronged attack, one focusing directly on Tavita, with the other attempting to hit the Germans in the rear. 
The goal of these moves was to trap the Germans into Vida, with General Teague leading the primary attack with 15,000 men, while General Stuart uh, led the flanking force with a further 4,000. Smuts was confident that this move would completely change the situation in the colony, and also remove Vorbeck from the board before the reigning season began. The force given to Teague was large enough that it was going to push the Germans out of Tavita. Nobody doubted that, and so the critical task would fall to General Stuart, who he had to get behind Latov Vorbeck's troops in time to cut them off before they retreated. To accomplish this task, he would have to march through some pretty inhospitable terrain with very little water along the way. Stuart would initially push his troops hard, and they would reach their first objective by March 6th, a day earlier than was planned. But it would turn out that in meeting this objective, he would push them too hard. In World War I, the African Front, an imperial war on the Dark Continent, Edward Pace would describe what it was like for the troops of Stuart's column as they marched. Quote, the regimental historian from the 129th Baluchis described how this march over semi-desert terrain in a tropical sun in column and on a strictly limited water supply was an ex- extremely exhausting task requiring good march discipline. All the troops except a small number in the advance guard and on the flanks were enveloped in a thick haze of dust from the moment the march started until the halt at the end of the day. Only those who had done such marches know what they mean. It is one thing to picture war in terms of smartly aligned columns marching on good roads. It is another to see the reality. Columns of filthy, sweating men staggering with fatigue at the end of such a march and with parched mouths gasping for water. And to see these troops in such a condition pull themselves together for battle with an entrenched enemy is to see real soldiers and to know the meaning of discipline. After the first objectives were reached on the 6th, Stuart's advance began to slow precipitously. Some of this slowdown was very understandable. There were no rail lines in the area, and supplies the troops, supplies to the troops were a huge problem. They were also the targets of near-constant German raiding and other problems from the prevalence of occasional heavy rains, which began to, as a precursor to the rainy season, which was just on the horizon. As report after report came into Smuts's hand, he became more and more frustrated with Stuart's lack of progress. On March 11th, Stuart had only moved his troops a total of 20 miles in the last three days, and he was far behind schedule. It was by this point basically impossible to trap the Germans who were already beginning to slip away. Smuts was furious. He believed that Stuart was not pushing his men hard enough and was being simply lackadaisical. He also thought that Stuart must not have properly prepared for his task. How else could he have failed so badly? Judgments both at the time and later would be far more positive for Stuart. Sure, he was not some general savant, but up until this point he had shown himself to be a totally competent commander in East Africa, and contemporary accounts paint him as a universally liked and trusted leader. More importantly, as the next year of fighting would prove, trapping the German troops was an almost impossible task. But in March 1916, Smuts didn't care. He believed Stuart had failed him due to being too cautious, and obviously he was not worthy of the command that he had been given, so he had to go. Stuart was relieved of his command, and would find himself commanding a garrison in Aden for the rest of the war. In my mind, this was Smuts simply finding a scapegoat for the failure of his operation. It obviously could not be Smuts's fault, so somebody must have failed. And like so many other officers during the war, Stuart would lose his job due to his commander's mistakes. 
Never one to just give up, Smuts would push forward with his attack even after the Germans had escaped his trap. After pushing the Germans out of their base at Tavita, Smuts was determined to keep them on the run instead of letting them settle into new positions. If this were to happen, the British might get bogged down during the rainy season, which would give the Germans just too long to recover and prepare to defend against them after the rain stopped. The plan was once again pretty similar to what had just happened. Smuts would have his main body of troops proceed directly against Latav Vorbeck to prevent him from setting up new positions along the Northern Railway. At the same time, a smaller force would attempt to outflank the Germans. This time, the flanking force would be comprised of mounted troops, which should give them more mobility. However, this time the flanking force also had two goals. The first was to force Vorbeck to make a choice. If he kept most of his troops facing Smuts and the main British army, he risked the central railway being cut by the mounted troops. If he moved troops to protect that railway, then he risked losing all of the northern railway to the advance of Smuts. Overall, this was a good plan for the British, but it relied on the ability of the mounted troops to move quickly towards their objectives, and in this simple task would lie their main problem. East Africa was entering into the rainy season, which would make it difficult to move anywhere, especially move anywhere quickly. There was a belief among the British leaders, based on local intelligence that would prove to be totally false, that the rains would not be as strong where the mounted troops were going, and it would just be completely incorrect. While Smuts was making his move elsewhere in East Africa, a group of Belgian troops were advancing into the German colony as well. This would not greatly impact this specific British advance, but it would prevent Latav Vorbeck from moving in more troops to meet the British troops. The German retreat from Tavita, and from the border with German East Africa in general, would be a lengthy series of actions a lot like this. In general, these were not overly costly in terms of casualties, but they were also not really that much of a hindrance on the British advance. All that the Germans could do was hit the British a few times while continuing to retreat as fast as possible. In this very limited set of goals, they were successful. Any greater German response was simply impossible due to the manpower disadvantage that they were under and the supply situation. Much like the British, the German units were also greatly affected by the near-complete lack of real infrastructure in this area, making moving large groups of troops or supplies a challenge. Most importantly for both sides was the fact that the rains soon arrived, and they would continue for two straight months. This allowed the Germans to break contact with the British for a while. And with the Germans in the air, they were allowed a bit of a breather, and they were given the opportunity to prepare for what was next. This would be an engagement in Kandanga Iringi. Here the Germans had fortified their positions, and the fight became one of positional warfare, with many of the familiar features of the European fighting. The battle would go on for weeks, as both sides tried to maintain their positions. It was, of course, quite costly. Eventually, Latov Vorbeck was forced to order a retreat. The attrition that his troops were experiencing was simply unsustainable for somebody who couldn't really get more troops. With this decision, the Germans had opted into more retreats, and these would continue all the way until the end of August. By that point, the British had captured a good amount of the Central Railway, and the capture of Dar es Salaam was just a matter of time. During this time, Smuts pushed his troops very hard, and he would later say that, quote, It may be that I expected too much of my men, that I imposed too hard a task on them under the awful conditions of this tropical campaign. And while this sounds like Smuts was questioning himself, 
he would also just be setting himself up for saying that he was doing the right thing, or really the only thing that he could do, because he would continue, quote, I do not think so. It is true that efforts like this cannot be made without inflicting the greatest hardships on all, but it is equally true that a commander who shrinks from such efforts should stay at home. Boy, he's really playing it up there. There would come a point in August where the British would meet up with the Germans once again, only this time the German troops had been able to dig in and fortify their positions once again. Smuts feared that if things continued, it would be very costly, and he had some hope that a negotiated settlement could be accomplished. He would send a note to the war office which said, quote, I must submit that on occupation of Central Railway, it would be advisable to make a serious effort to effect the surrender of the German forces without running the risk and expense of protracted guerrilla operations in the far south of the territory, End quote. While this type of settlement would have been great for the British, the chances of it actually happening were quite low. Even Smuts knew that. And so he planned on launching more offensive operations. This would require him to push through the areas around the Ulaguru Mountains, which he would later say was among the most difficult of the whole campaign. With these bodies of troops constantly moving around East Africa, supplies or lack of supplies became a critical factor that dictated the course of the campaign. The British supply lines ran all the way back from their own colony, and so the further they advanced, the longer those supply lines became. This did not prevent the British from pushing forward, but they fell into something of a pattern. The main body of troops would push directly at the Germans, while troops were then sent around to hit them in the flanks. The Germans would then defend against this flanking force while the entire body of troops retreated. This happened again and again and again until early September when even Smuts was forced to admit that it was time for a break. The troops from British East Africa had advanced 200 miles in just six weeks, and it was simply impossible to continue. This exertion had cost them both in terms of absolute numbers, but also in terms of health. By the end of September, 6,000 British troops were out of their units and in the hospital, and this resulted in some units being completely combat ineffective. It was time for a break, and when that break was over, the war in East Africa would once again decisively change. It's a long, long way to Tipperary. 